You are now tuned in in to the December December 26th podcast, podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary extraordinary on an ordinary day. day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Tariq McDermott. Tariq is vice president of legal and compliance at a specialized investment management firm with $30 billion in assets under management. And he is also the founder of Serene Health Center, a company focused on bringing quality health care to underserved communities. Tariq is a Harlem native who was raised by his mother and grandmother. By the time he landed on the campus of Hampton University, he knew he wanted to be in business. But after graduation, he had trouble finding a job. So he worked as a math tutor and then as a security guard. That is until a friend's mother got him an opportunity in a call center at Time Warner. Tariq showed up in suits every single day in hopes of getting noticed and getting a shot at moving over to corporate. And while that opportunity never materialized, he did land a contract position at J.P. Morgan, which then led to a job in Delaware. And that was the start of his career in iBanking. But after a few years of dealing with corporate bureaucracy, Tariq not only made a job change, but he also decided to simultaneously focus on entrepreneurship. And from that decision, Serene Health Center was born. Tariq and his partners are committed to their mission to enrich the healthcare experience by providing rehabilitation, physician care, and healthcare services inspired by technology, innovation, and wellness for those who are often forgotten. They are so committed, in fact, that they've been bootstrapping the entire operation during the pandemic. But Tariq is doing this with a long-term vision in mind, and that vision does not include giving up ownership of what he's building. So without further ado, here's his story. Tariq, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am excellent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Really excited to talk to you, uh, particularly about your Caribbean roots, because that's point of commonality, uh, but also your career journey, which I find pretty intriguing considering um, how you've elevated in, in your profession as well. So looking forward to getting into those things. And plus, I'm just loving the black sweater you've got going on with this backdrop here. It really, really works. You know, you got to keep it simple. It's cold. You know, I live in my in my basement, so I have to like wear things to keep me warm. But you know, I have to like have things that sort of give it a pop, you know, living in a basement can be kind of gloomy. So I have like art all over the place to keep it lively, you know? Listen, I have learned now as a homeowner, especially a homeowner of an older home, that the heat is not the same in various places of the house. Depending on where you are, it is not evenly distributed. These older homes, they have great character, but it's not a game when it comes to that that air distribution for sure. Yeah, especially when you're underground, like old, right. old air <laughs> comes down here. So Exactly. So we can talk about real estate and all that great stuff offline, uh, but let's get into it. Tell me, who is Tariq McDermott? Who is Tariq? Uh, such a loaded question. Um, I'm a hustler. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I'm a legacy builder. I'm a you know political activist, humanitarian. Um, I'm a myriad of things. Um, I'm also like, you know, the rose that grew from the concrete in Harlem where I was born and raised. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I, th- I think I'm just a, a humble guy that started out um, and I'm trying to finish on top and, you know, make a positive impact on the world on my journey. Um, I think, you know, Maya Angelou said it best. She said, 
you know, uh, my, my uh, mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and do some with some compassion, some humor and some style. And, you know, that's pretty much how I live my life. And I tend to believe that folks who are diligent and intentional about legacy building, that often is driven by their own experiences, be it negative or positive, that that informs why things like wealth generation, legacy building, activism are important to us. So with that being said, tell me a bit about your origin story. Oh, um, so born and raised in Harlem, a uh, single parent. Uh, my grandmom was very involved in my life. You know, Harlem is is a very special and different place, uh, you know, very lively, filled with culture and spirit. Um, always something going on, parties, events, uh, basketball games during the summer was a thing, you know. In Harlem, everyone is about self-expression and, you know, everyone puts their, put their best outfit on because everywhere you go, you're going to see someone. There's always a crowd of people around. So you want to, you know, make sure you present your best self. Um, so always a lot of fun. Um, but at the same time, it's a dangerous place as well, right? You know, you have a lot of gun violence, you know, still to this day. Um, so you can expect to, like, have a great time, but you got to kind of watch over your shoulder because, you know, there's always you know, rivalries between neighborhoods going on and, you know, five or six people getting shot and killed, um, you know, during the summertime or when things are kind of going on. So, um, you know, I had my fair share of, of um, positive and negative experience in Harlem, experiences in Harlem. Um, but at the same time, you know, for me personally, education was priority number one in my household. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my mom was a single parent. Um, And she worked extremely hard to make sure I got the best education. Um, You know, I went to private school pretty much all my life, middle school and high school. And then I was fortunate enough to go to Hampton. But my mom always said, you know, I work two jobs to put you through school. You're going to get a good education so you can do well for yourself and take care of your family. So, you know, that was kind of my balance growing up, like hanging out and partying and you know, living on the edge a little bit, so to speak, um, coming up in Harlem. But then at the same time, I was that same kid that always had the uniform on and a book bag full of books. And, you know, I was always about getting good grades and stuff like that. So, you know, I was kind of tethering between those two lifestyles. And then um, I went off to Hampton, um, graduated from Hampton, uh, which also had a really, really big impact on my life. Right. Like that's a culture shock. Um, it's like on the borderline of, you know, the southern part of America. And it's very different from Harlem. Very, very different. And, um, you know, being in Hampton, you get to see like an abundance of black excellence. Right. And, you know, people that come from generations of college graduates and some, you know, some families even have a lot of wealth. And that is a very different experience from Harlem. But um, you don't really recognize that. Uh, while you're in it, because, you know, you, you only know what you see. But then when you see um, all these affluent families, you're like, wow, like, you know, there are people out here that really come from wealth and education and stuff like that. So, um, you know, all those things kind of, you know, shaped me um, for who I am as a man now. You know, and it's it's funny to me, I think growing up, having that mom who worked multiple jobs to put you through private school, it felt like an experience that was unique to my story. And now that we've been doing the show, you realize how many single parents made the sacrifice to give their kids the best shot possible at college admission, uh, at a career. And when you're in it as a child, I think, you know, you don't have um, as deep of an appreciation for the level of sacrifice and energy it takes to make that happen. Um, but that experience, 
I, the, at what you were describing, I've had that exact experience of like all the books. These kids don't know. They got their Chromebooks <laughs> now. They don't know the struggle, right, of having homework in every subject and having to bring all those textbooks home. But for where I grew up, different experience than you walking through a Harlem neighborhood in a uniform with a backpack full of books. So did you feel like an oddity? You know, was there a discomfort there um, with living this life in private school, but then also coming home to your community? Oh, that brings back so many memories. You know, I had a lot of friends that were from the neighborhood and they would make fun of me all the time. They still make fun of me. Um, You know, and I come home from work in the summertime and I'm like coming from the train and everyone's outside and I have on my suit, you know, people oh, look at, you know, tight pants and um, stuff like that. But it was, you know, there were jokes out of love. But yeah, I did. I did feel like um, uh, an oddity or rarity, so to speak, because, you know, a lot of people didn't have those opportunities, you know, so. I was like, you know, one of the only kids that, you know, was always in private school or would always kind of walk through the block um, in a suit or like with a book bag full of books. So, um, you know, it, it was an eye opening thing. And, you know, people made jokes out of love. But, you know, you can tell like people wanted to have those opportunities as well. So, yeah, <laughs> that question definitely brings back a lot of memories. And you mentioned this exposure to to positivity, but also exposure to negativity as well. And when you're talking about the time that you were growing up in, also lots of things happening, lots of criminal activity, um, and not just on the side that we know and we've seen on the news, the the killings, all those things, um, territory battles, but like all kinds of other crime that that may not be as as well known um, and readily apparent. But for you, how did you really combat that that pressure and that pull um, while being exposed to things that are very different than the world you're living in academically and maybe in your household? Uh, it was tough, you know, um, because when you are choosing to go the positive route um, in Harlem, especially at that age, like certain things are important to you, right? Like you want to have nice clothes and you want to be able to step out and sort of keep up with the Joneses and things like that. But when you are on a straight path and your parents don't really have the resources to provide those things for you. And then you, you see people kind of doing things um, on the side or like, you know, involved in activity that would, you know, sort of put a risk to their freedom. Um, and they, you know, making fast money and they have all the jewelry and cars and stuff. And, you know, these are my friends. Like, you know, I grew up on 115th and Lenox. So, you know, these are my actual friends. These are not just people I see walking by. So, you know, it's very tempting to be like, you know, I, let, let me just jump in. Um, you know, for this one time and then I'll, I'll jump out. Um, but I think what kept me on track was just knowing there was light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Like I knew that my journey was going to be um, a lot longer than some people. Um, but I knew if I stood focused that I would come out on top. And, uh, and you know, now it's, it's one of those things that's coming full circle because now I can start to see. Um, that that road behind me and, and, and thankful that I stayed on the right path because now I'm able to sort of, you know, live the life that I want to and, and I'm free and you know, I have my freedom. And some of my friends, you know, they didn't make it um, and they either, you know, got caught up in street life and went to prison or some of them even got killed. So, you know, I'm just I'm just thankful I stood on the right path. Right. And, you know, shout out to the strong black women who have raised strong black men Um especially across generations, mother and grandmother coming together to rear children, but not having that male presence in the home. Did you feel 
the absence of your father or were you getting guidance and mentorship and that that void filled in some other way? Uh, yes, to both. Um, so, you know, I definitely miss the absence of my father. Um, you know, I, I'd hear stories about him all the time. Like, oh, you know, you dress just like your dad and, you know, you act just like your dad. But I didn't know him. So, you know, I had no recollection or no memory of him as an adult. Um, it was only until recently that I was able to visit him, maybe a few years ago. So, you know, I, I definitely missed or always wondered, like, what he was like. Um, but fortunately enough for me, you know, I had a, a lot of other, you know, positive male figures in my life. Um, you know, when I, growing up in, in Harlem, there's a, um, a rec center down the street called Millbank. Um, and, you know, there were men there that, you know, sort of took me under the wing and, and mentored me and stuff like that. So I always had positive male figures in my life. But, you know, those people are not flesh and blood, you know, although they are extremely well-intentioned, it's just not the same as having like your actual dad, you know? So, you know, you have this experience of having positive male influence outside the home, even though and hearing stories about your father, even though he's not there uh, and also having this academic experience of being exposed to the next level of education via private school. Did you have a view very early of what you what you aspired to be? Yes. Um, And it was very broad strokes. Right. Like, you know, I didn't come from. Um, you know, a legacy of, of college graduates. And so I didn't have a lot of exposure to like what was out there um, in terms of career paths and stuff like that. Only what I saw on TV, but you don't really have an understanding of, of those things. Um, but I knew, um, you know, around high school that I wanted to be involved in business, right? Um, just because, uh, you know, I always wanted to be that guy that was a leader or out in front and making decisions. And um, you know, that's those are things I kind of learned growing up in Harlem, right? They had like the kid groups, you know, everyone had their little crew back in the day. And, you know, I always was the one that wanted to be the CEO, even though I didn't know what that meant <laughs> back then. Um, but I knew that that was the person that was in charge. That was the leader. And I was good at organizing things and calling meetings. And, you know, those things I learned like before I understood what business was. So, you know, once I started to get exposure to to these different programs um, and Millbank, the rec center I mentioned, um, you know, they had these different avenues where you could, you know, sort of go and, and shadow people in the workplace. And I knew from day one of that program when I walked in, I think I had it was in Sony. People had them in nice suits and the office was nice. And I knew from then, like, this is my path. Like, I need to be a business person. And then I kind of figured out, like, down the line that I wanted to be on the legal side of business. Um, and fortunately that worked out for me. So you get to Hampton. So, you know, we're stepping back a little bit where you get to Hampton, got this hardworking family that, that has helped you get there, but now you're seeing black wealth and black wealth um, that has been gained through careers and, you know, passed down through gen- generations um, in a way that may be different than black wealth and opulence that you may have seen in New York. Did you feel a sense of uh, comparison or inadequacy in any way now realizing that, wow, there there are Black people who live like this and who grew up with both parents and who have all the resources in the world and the path is set for them when they walk out of here? Did you feel that difference uh, or stark contrast in comparison to your story? Absolutely. <laughs> and almost instantly, right? Because You know, when you come from New York, especially at that age, you kind of have this chip on your shoulder that, you know, we're like the best, we're the coolest, we have the most swag and things like that. 
Um, in, in, in my opinion, to a certain degree, that's even true, right? So, Agreed. Um, <laughs> but it's one thing to have all the nice clothes and to be a slick talker and, and you know, have charisma and things like that. Um, but then when you start to have conversations with people that come from these families and have infinite resources and, and not even financial, I mean, like just the networks they have access to. It's like, well, wow, I don't know anyone that is the CEO of XYZ or is, you know, the director of of this. Um, and so, you know, when you start to have those conversations, you realize that, you know, having nice clothes and things like that is nice. But, you know, people really have extensive resources beyond like what we could even have imagined coming from Harlem. So, indeed, I felt a difference instantly. But I'm sure, you know, you had such a laser like focus on on knowing what you wanted to do. There was that drive there as well. Like I'm here. There's access from an academic perspective and from additional support um, opportunities, as well as internship and you know job opportunities as well. I'm sure you had that exposure also. So, you know, in terms of like the next step in your academic and professional journey to get on the path that you wanted to get on as far as career um, did that crystallize very early? Like, were you a person who's like, I'm going to get this internship, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to make these moves um, to make sure that I'm set up by the time I graduate from here? No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, so while I had uh, you know, exposure to internships and things of that nature, they didn't sort of uh, evolve or, or turn into opportunities right away. Um, you know, I graduated from Hampton and that summer I spent without a job. Um, and then that fall, I ended up, you know, working as a math tutor, uh, making basically like $150 a week. And <laughs> I did that for about a year. And that was like one of the most depressing times in my life, right? Like I am a first generation, you know, graduate and I come home with this big fancy $90,000 piece of paper. And I can't even get a job. And then the first job I get is a tutor and I'm making $150 a week. I could barely afford to get on the train and, you know, buy myself a pair of sneakers to help my mom with the bill or two. So that that was a very depressing time. But it was motivating because I knew that that was not the end of the road for me. Right. I had come too far, worked too hard. Um, so I kept pushing. And, you know, a friend of mine, he was working retail doing security uh, for a while. And he's like, man, you know, just just come get your eight hour license, your 16 hour license and do security. And I was like, you know, why not? Um, you know, that, that was paying more than what I was making. So, you know, I did it. Um, and even then, you know, I was standing in front of the door, like, you know, checking people's bags as they walk in and now, and I'm just like, man, I have to keep going, you know? And, um, another friend of mine from Hampton, and this is where my network starts to work for me a little bit. Um, his mom worked at HR and Tom Warner Cable. And she's like, you know, I can get you a job at the call center. And I'm like, Let's do it. You know, it's, it's, it's just it's a progression. It's a step in the right direction. So, you know, I did that. And, um, you know, I wore a suit to work <laughs> at the call center because I could see the opportunity. Right. Like it was connected to the corporate center. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's where I need to be. And, um, you know, so I, I used to wear a suit to work and people used to be like, why are you in a suit? You know, you don't have to dress up <laughs> to work at a call center. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, someone's going to notice me and I'm going to have a conversation with them and they're going to see that I can, you know, do what they do on the corporate side. And of course, that never happened. <laughs> but while I was at Time Warning Cable, um, I got wind of an opportunity to work at J.P. Morgan 
um, on this temporary project, uh, they were trying to reconcile the mortgage crisis. You know, they screwed up the loan servicing and they had um, a ton of records to go through. So they hired a bunch of people um, temporarily to work on that. And, um, you know, I got in and I did extremely well because now I'm like, OK, I'm here now. I have to work. Um, and, you know, I did I did my thing and, you know, I was one of the top analysts on the project. And, you know, I found a mentor, uh, Italian guy. His name is Guy. Uh, I'll never forget it. So cool. So cool. And he was like, man, you know, you at the end of this project, you can either go back to Tom Warner or you can go to Delaware to work at the investment bank. And I looked at him, I said, are you kidding me? Like, you just said investment bank. I don't care where it is. I'm going. Um, and that's what I did. You know, I went down to Delaware, uh, worked in Delaware for two years. Again, you know, outperformed and I was able to come back to New York. And then, you know, I've been on an upward trajectory since then, um, you know, career wise. So I think what is doubly hard for a lot of folks, particularly black people, is, you know, we've been told go to school get your degree, get a good job and everything's going to be great. And it doesn't always pan out that way in a straight line. It can happen, but because often because the network is not there, particularly if you're coming out of school in a weird time. And I think you were coming out post great recession, you know, so the economy is still trying to find its footing again. Um, it can, even though, you know, there's so many circumstances outside of your control, it can have a psychological effect um, not just from a perspective like I'm broke, but also from the perspective I did what I was supposed to do and this tree is not yielding fruit. And when you go to a school that's known for legacy and people who come from generational wealth, you may have classmates and friends who are not having the same experience because of their Rolodex. So how is that weighing on you? You know, before these other opportunities, you're literally checking IDs and, ba and, and, and bags when there may be somebody who graduated alongside of you who was able to leverage their Rolodex for the better? It was embarrassing, honestly. Um, you know, I, again, I'm from Harlem. I have that. That's in my spirit. Uh, it's in my DNA. And I'm a proud person. So that was a really, really tough time in my life. But I just knew that I was going to continue to work until I came out on top. So, you know, while I was like, you know, staying away from all the social events and catching up with people just because I just wasn't in, in the place I wanted to be, you know, obviously, you know, I had tons of friends that were, you know, working these big jobs, you know, because they could make a phone call that would grant them that opportunity. And I didn't have that same resource. So I, you know, I kind of stood to myself um, for a while. And then, you know, thankfully now I'm sort of out of that space, but, you know, I just stayed away from people and stood to myself and I kept my head down and just kept working. Um, you know, it was a tough time, but sometimes you have to just, you know, put your pitch up, big boy shoes on and, and, you know, keep walking down that journey. And that's, and that's what I did. So you go through all these steps that have, you know, nothing, math tutor, security, customer service, nothing to do with what you went to school for, but it's a big leap to go from that and then get into iBanking with JP Morgan. So you spend these two years uh, in Delaware and then you come back North, right? And then what did the next chapter of your career look like? Uh, so uh, I was in the investment bank in New York, uh, and now I'm starting to catch up with people again, right? Because now I have this job and I kind of feel like I can stand shoulder to shoulder with people. That's a separate issue in itself. But, um, you know, I'm starting to have these conversations and I'm realizing that, you know, I am being underpaid. Like I can, you know, do much better than I'm doing because I started out so low. Um, so now I'm seeking other opportunities and I go to a consulting firm. 
Um, because, you know, when you make the jump from a large institution to a smaller one, you know, generally you get the big pay bump because, you know, you're sort of working in a system that's a lot smaller. So it's more difficult and stuff like that. So they have to pay you more. Uh, so I worked at a consulting firm um, that specializes in um, providing experts to people that are, you know, seeking investment opportunities. Right. So like if I'm an investment analyst at J.P. Morgan and I'm researching products at Apple to invest in a company, ultimately, but I don't know anything about the space. I'll, I'll call that company to sort of connect with an expert so I can learn and get smart about it. Um, so I did that uh, for about two years. And um, unknown, un- unbeknownst to me, that experience coupled with my J.P. Morgan experience was the perfect formula to go to the buy side, which is like the sexier side of um, investment banking. Um, so, you know, I get this call from this recruiter. I updated my LinkedIn and she saw my LinkedIn. She's like, um, have you ever thought about going to the buy side? And I'm like, me? Like I had I had no intention of taking that direction because I know it's impossible, A, to get into those firms and two, get in as a as a black person, honestly. And um, you know, when she she told me about the role, I was like, of course, like, you know, so, you know, she schedules the interview for a week out and I'm like, I need time to prep. So put this thing out as far as you can. And every night I would just go over my resume. I read as much as I could. I watched movies. I did everything to make sure that I was prepared for that interview. And, you know, I did a good job. You know, the hiring manager loved me, wanted me to start, you know, in the next week or so. So when I got in there, I was like, wow, like I am, my life is different now. Like I've made basically like a forty to $60,000 jump from my old job. And now I have like a different, trajectory now right so i did that for five years um but that is a very very different world very very different world super privileged like these are you know children that come from you know long legacies of uh you know people that graduated from harvard and yale so like i'm trying to socialize with these people and again like i'm from harlem so (laughs) there is a huge disconnect right like we don't communicate the same right we don't we're not interested in the same thing so that was kind of tough for me um trying to fit in socially but you know i kept my head down i kept working um but for some reason i couldn't get promoted you Mm. know i was working just as hard and i had a colleague who we were like shoulder to shoulder we were doing the same job it was just split down the middle and he got promoted twice you know and that five years go by and i'm still an associate and he's now a manager and, and everyone notices this at this point because like i've been with the firm five years you know people sort of rely on me to carry like part of the compliance program so people know that i'm doing a good job but i'm not getting like the title or the bump that i'm supposed to and this is recently um so you know fast forward you know i started looking for opportunities um i got a job um that i'm currently in now um as a vp with like my rightful place <laughs> um and and so yeah, that's been my journey so far. And now I work for a multi-strategy, multi-billion-dollar investment advisor, and I'm vice president on legal and compliance team. So you know, we we all know the politics and bureaucracy um, that goes around career advancement in the corporate space, and finance and financial services, whole other beast. We could spend an hour just talking about that, right? And and what you described happens a lot. Um, and I've, I've had these conversations both on the show and off the show, but when you're in it, right, you find a way to navigate and, and get over that hurdle. If you're committed to the career, it's a shame that we have to do that, but it's true. Um, but when you're in it, the psychological toll it can take 
when you're literally seeing somebody sitting to the right or to the left of you, which is your the which is exactly what happened to you, literally advancing. Um, and you're like, the performance reviews are there, the executive sponsors are there, but it's just not happening for me. So how did you keep yourself grounded mentally and spiritually in the face of being essentially held back? Wow, that's such a good question because I was a mess. Um, you know, a part of that story that I didn't tell um, was that, you know, they brought on uh, a more junior person around my third year um, and I trained her um, and she got promoted before me. And when that happened, I lost it. You know, that day when they announced the promotions and I saw her name on the list and mine wasn't, I lost it. I had to like, I put my coat on and I had to leave because you know, I was just like, ha- like, they just literally spit in my face. I trained this girl. And how did she get, you know, promoted before me? And, um, you know, I was a mess for a while. You know, I started to underperform. I didn't care about the job. Um, but then I just had talks with friends and they're like, yo, you know, just keep your head up, man. Like something's going to happen for you. And then I started to see a therapist and, you know, she really, really changed, you know, my outlook on things. She just was like, you know, you have to keep performing for you. It's not about them. You know, you're not, in, what you're doing is, is you know, trying to overcome an obstacle. It's not about them. And once I changed my mind to, to sort of work in that framework, I started to perform again and I felt better about it. And then when it was time for me to leave, you know, then that's when they're like, oh, you know, we want to promote you. We want you to be a manager. You can work from home. We'll pay you X amount of dollars. And I'm like, really? Like you wait until now. But it was it was really heavy on my mental my mental health, you know. I, I and I knew more than anything that I was being underpaid because you know I should be two levels above where I am, and 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 finance, especially on the buy side, that is a huge, huge, huge compensation difference. So it was heavy, um, but thankfully I am out of that space. And shout out to a, a great therapist because these environments are toxic. Let's just call them what they are. When you are trying to do everything right and you're doing the work and it's just not happening for you, it and, and it's infuriating when you have to stand there and drink the champagne and clap and congratulate somebody who's managed to advance beyond you when they came in um, after you. And, and I think it's really important. It's a piece of advice that I try to give when I talk to folks who are just entering their career. Like, Make sure you have a support system around you. Make sure you have a good therapist or a good coach, a career coach or something that you can talk to. Because when you get into these situations and it happens to the best of us, um, it can push you so far in the other direction that exactly what you said happens. It's like you're now giving them ammunition to not advance your career because you're so burnt out and exhausted from all the things going on behind the scenes that you're not performing. And I think the only way to be successful, you can have all the talent in the world, but the only way to be successful in these environments is having the right support behind you. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny part about that story is that woman, when she got promoted, um, they didn't pay her what she wanted to get. And thank God I was in a right state of mind at that time. And I was nice to her. Um, and, you know, I continued to support her because she left. So it was kind of like a smack back to them. And coincidentally, she works at the firm that I'm at now. Mm. So my resume magically appears on her desk. And she's like, Tariq, I love Tariq. He trained me, you know, he helped me get promoted. And she's like, hired him. 
you know, this is a good guy. And I had no idea that she was like working for me behind the scenes. And, you know, I skipped over like a lot of steps in the interview process just because I had her sort of champion championing for me in the background. Um, so, you know, it worked out for me in the long run that I was still, you know, a nice person to her um, and not let that sort of like affect our relationship. So it worked out for me in the end. So what does your role look like now? Um, vice president, legal and compliance. Um, this is a real estate. Well, it's a multi-strategy investment advisory firm, but it's mostly focused on real estate. Um, roughly $30 billion company. Um and um, it's sort of a startup. Um, so we're charged with, well, my team in particular is charged with building out the compliance program around this really huge and complex investment company, uh, which is a daunting task, right? There's a lot of tedious details to go over. But at the same time, you know, our, my function is um, pretty much regula- regulated by the government. So there's a lot of pressure to make sure things don't fall through the cracks. Um, And, you know, we're working under intense stress and scrutiny every single day um, to not make any mistakes. As you know, in finance, like, you know, there's no room for error, right? Like, could you imagine waking up one day and checking your account and, you know, the money that you thought was there isn't there, right? Like that would be, that would cause an uproar. So like, there's literally no room for error. And, you know, I'm charged with making sure things, you know, go as they're supposed to. And it's, it's a big task when I'm coming from a firm that, you know, didn't think that I was capable of of rising to that sort of um, that sort of occasion. So now I'm just stepping in and it's, it's trial by fire and I'm, I'm doing pretty well so far. And I would think that you're working with a lot of attorneys as well. Yeah. yeah and, that, and that's the funny thing, too. Right. Because I I'm over a few attorneys and I don't have a law degree. <laughs> so. There are challenges that come come with that, too. Right. Like there's this sort of, you know, chip on their shoulder, like, well, who's this guy? He doesn't, you know. But thankfully, I have the experience to where I'm confident enough to to stay in my role and, and have sort of some authority because I just I know what I'm doing. Um, degree or law degree or not. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this might be a controversial question. You can choose to answer it or not, considering that this is your current role. Um, but do you think being in these types of positions where you have oversight uh, and oversight of those with this advanced degree, do you think there's an added layer of complexity having this oversight and also being a Black man? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I feel like I've been in this type of environment for long enough to where I know how to navigate. And this this goes back to the mentor I mentioned in the very beginning of my career. He told me, you know, be assertive but be reasonable. And, you know, when you're assertive and you sort of exercise that confidence and that strength, people know like not to play with you, you know? So especially if you know um, your work and you're, you know, you're diligent and you are, you know, making sure you cross every T, um, you know, it's, it's really hard for people to try to play those kind of games with you, right? Like, so I've been fortunate enough to not experience anything major. Um, but, you know, there are the little backhanded comments that might come every now and then followed by like a joke. But, you know, it comes with the territory and I'm fine with that. So you've got this career path that completely makes sense. The, the steps that you've taken and how it's evolved um, and is impressive the way that you've because it, it does feel like sometimes you've got to accelerate later because you had the slower start. 
Um, and when things kind of click and like you said, you can, the stars align and you can skip some steps in the process on the interview where this person knows you, you feel vindicated in a sense and like you're making up for lost time. And most people would just stay on that trajectory to C-suite within whatever their chosen corporate field is. Then you have this whole other thing, which feels very much like out of left field, right? A health center. Yes. Tell me a bit about that. Wow. So that has been a journey in itself. Um, So during the pandemic, um, you know, I was just sitting around and I'm thinking, like, you know, I live in my my um, property now, which is a multifamily. Uh, It's my first real estate investment. So, you know, during the pandemic, I'm like, you know, it's time for property number two. And, um, you know, I'm working with the realtor and looking at this building, like a commercial building that I wanted to buy. And I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Right. This is boring. Like, I don't want to just buy another building and rent it out. Like, I want to, you know, add something to it. And, um, you know, I was having conversations with um, my best friend, one of my best friends, his name is King, um, met him at Hampton. And, you know, he's a, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. And he's like, you know, maybe we can do something. But this conversation doesn't evolve until later on. So Christmas comes around and, you know, I'm like talking to my mom and she has this friend that has um, a daycare. So now the wheels are turning. I'm like, wait a second, maybe I can put a daycare in this building and, you know, I can get more creative around that. Um, so I start having conversations with people and I'm pulling resources and the idea pops in my head to do an adult daycare. Um, because parallel to that, you know, I'm experiencing things with my grandmother. She's, you know, having, um, uh, what do you call it? Like these sessions like of dementia. She's showing signs of dementia. So now I'm like, man, I have to do something. And that idea kind of comes full circle because of what's happening in my personal life. So I'm like, let's do an adult daycare, um, you know, to target, you know, dementia patients or, you know, just elderly people that need something to do or need care during the day. Um, so naturally I go to my friend, he's in, in healthcare. So he's the first person I call, like, you know, let's get together, let's do something. And, you know, he has the bright idea to bring the therapy component into that business model. And I'm like, that's amazing idea because those things kind of work together. Um, but in the pandemic, you know, it's tough because we can't get the the necessary um, licenses that we need because everything is shut down. And, you know, at this point, we have already like rented out of space and we're talking to consultants and the consultants open the daycare. It's like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And we're like, that's not going to work <laughs> because we can't open it to the public anytime soon because of we're in the middle of the pandemic. So now we're just kind of shifting, you know, focusing on therapy and, um, you know, we're kind of mirroring uh, a business model that he's familiar with. He's like, you know, we need to do something bigger than just therapy. We need to be a one-stop shop. And now, like, you know, there are other things that are sort of playing in the back of my head about socioeconomics and, you know, building institutions for Black communities and things like that. And I'm like, you're right. You know, we need to do like a full-scale health center. So now, you know, we're on the path to to have a one-stop shop, right? We have therapy, the therapy company, which provides physical, physical speech and occupational therapy, and then we adding the physician component to it where we'll have pain management, we'll have a podiatrist, an internal medicine doctor, and those components will sort of work together and serve as a one-stop shop um, for, for healthcare. Now, the city that we're in, East Orange, um, you know, underserved community, um, you know, low income predominantly, and there is nothing 
in sight that is decent. Like there's no health center that is decent. So we're like, man, like this is a really bad situation. You know, once we start to reach out to the community and have these conversations, they're like, you know, if I want to get care from my son who, you know, has autism and I want to get him some therapy, I have to go, you know, 30, 40 minutes away. And, you know, she's like, I don't have a car or, you know, this, this is tough for me to do that. And, you know, kids with autism, they need that, like a lot of support. So it's tough for them to get the care that they need because they have to travel so far. So, you know, as we start to have these conversations, we like, man, we really have to get this done because there is a huge need for the services here. And, you know, fast forward, here we are opening our doors to the community. So I know you say here we are fast forward, but I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. When you think about the cost associated with like the insurance alone, right? So it's it it seems like someone who's at your level professionally, who's done really well, it seems still seems like that would be a really heavy lift. So how did how were you able to go about this and invest the resources to actually pull it off? Wow, um, great question. This that was the most challenging aspect of this, right? Because this is uncharted territory, right? You know. My friends in healthcare is a therapist, but the business side of healthcare is completely different. So this is this is new to all of us. And so, you know, just getting the frame, the legal framework set up was an obstacle in itself because we have no idea what to do. And so, you know, we're reaching out to people and trying to gather resources, and then we start talking to consultants. And, you know, we're paying people twenty five hundred, three thousand and this and that to have these conversations to get smarter around what we need to do. And we're getting nowhere. You know, people are taking advantage of us because they know we don't know anything and, you know, they can get paid just to tell us whatever they want. And they don't really know like how to do, because like our model is still like more complex than most other healthcare institutions. So we need like someone who's an expert to guide us through this journey and people are just telling us whatever. So we're wasting thousands of dollars on that. And, you know, just to take a step back, this is all self-funded. You know, we're, we're paying for this out of pocket. And at this point, we have the space. So we're paying rent, fully renovated. Everything's brand new. I mean, the floor, the paint, the ceiling, you know, we are adding things to make it look nice. We have to furnish the place, right? Then we have to get the healthcare equipment. You know, we have this small little machine. I still don't know what it does because that is not my area. But this is a $6,000 machine and it's like this big. So, you know, we have all those costs and we're paying for this like out of pocket. Like when I get paid, I'm paying for, you know, expenses that are coming up. And this is just like in the infrastructure stages. So we're building, we're building. We finally find a lawyer um, who's gracious enough to be honest with us and say, you know, what you guys are trying to do is extremely difficult. It's rare and it's going to cost a lot of money to do this. And, you know, uh, my business partner, there are three of us, um, you know, we're all kind of built from the same cloth. We're like, you know, we can do this. We're going to do it. And so, you know, we're trudging forward, but, you know, we're footing the bill. <laughs> so, um, you know, we get the infrastructure, the legal framework uh, sort of set up. And now, you know, we furnish the place, we get the equipment. And now here comes the marketing. We have to, you know, pay for that. And then now we need employees, right? Because we all have full-time jobs. We can't be there. Um, so now we're adding um, employees and headcount to the firm. And again, you know, we're paying for all of this out of pocket. So now we have employees, we have a website, we have the legal framework set up, we have all these things. And like you mentioned, now it's insurance, right? Because we're not going to ask people from the community to pay us out of pocket, right? Like we have to have 
the the, ins- the insurance set up to sort of support um, how the people are going to pay. So that's an entirely different <laughs> journey, right? So we take the um, we take the lawyer's advice and we sort of figure out like how to get a network with the insurances, and we're still like on the tail end of that, right? And we've been open since August. And we're still, you know, navigating, um, you know, the complexity of, of figuring out the insurances, but we're getting there. Um, but, you know, all self-funded um, and we're, you know, figuring it out as we go. Um, so, yeah, my mind is kind of blown, actually. It, it's just having been a business owner, you know, I know what it takes. Um, so it's impressive that you all have been able to do this and just the renovation and the equipment and everything it, it takes. Bootstrapping for an organization or a company that requires that many different elements is very different than bootstrapping, say, just a digital business or something where, you know, all you need is sort of your mind and a computer uh, as well. So how have you managed this from a time perspective, also having a full-time job and a job that is heavily regulated and under a lot of scrutiny? That's not a set it and forget it kind of profession. It is extremely difficult, extremely difficult. I basically have a set schedule, right? Like, so I'm working my my career from eight to about seven. Some days it goes to eight. Take an hour break, try to eat, go to the gym. And then the next three hours of my night is strictly focused on the health center. Um, and I try to stick to that schedule, but obviously some days, you know, kind of shifts back and forth. Like sometimes I can spend more time in the health center or less time at work, but, you know, I have to kind of carve out that time um, to make sure I'm working on both businesses um, equally or like proportionately, I should say. Um, so having extreme time management skills and sort of setting boundaries, right? Because I still have friends, I have family and all those things. So trying to balance that out is, is difficult, right? Because people just don't understand like how difficult this journey can be, especially when you're paying, um, you know, you're self-funding a startup um, with, with so much overhead, right? Like people just don't understand. So Setting boundaries, um, extreme precise time management, and faith in God to keep me going. You know, so some days it gets heavy. And looking to the community that you've chosen to serve, which is honorable, but let's be clear, going into um, someplace like East Orange is very different than going somewhere like Maplewood. Not far apart, but a very, very different from a median income resources that are available to them, that kind of population. So how do you balance, and of course there's insurance payments and all of that, but how do you balance obviously a a desire to make something profitable, but also serve a community that has been neglected in so many ways? How do you really reconcile the two as an activist, but also a for-profit business owner? I think it's really, honestly, it's just, it's just having, um, keeping my principles in mind and my partners keeping our principles in mind, because like you said, right, we could easily go to a different neighborhood and, and make, and, and make tons of profit, right. And be much easier. Um, but I think for us, it's more about, you know, building institutions to support people that are underserved, right. Because we come from those neighborhoods, right. Like I'm from Harlem, my partner's from Queens, um, and my other partner's an immigrant. So, you know, we're like, yeah, we can make a lot of money um, if we're in this other neighborhood, but our purpose is much bigger here. It's, it's not just about money because all of us are well off, right? Like I'm a vice president. My partners are occupational therapists and they're at the top of their fields. Like money is not uh, the motivation for us. It's more about building legacy and in an institution and making a positive impact 
Um, especially after having those conversations with parents um, that want to have, you know, support for their children. Cause um, the area that we in is, is very, it's, it's, there are a lot of autistic children and families there. So there's a lot of support that is required and, you know, being able to provide that for them um, conveniently and they don't have to travel 30 or 40 minutes to go to the next town. Like, you know, there's purpose in that and that's more important than, than money. Absolutely. So getting the doors open, you've got the equipment in, you've now gotten the staff. How did you get clientele through the door? That patience, I should say. (laughs) It was really tough. Um, And I mean, we're still we're still thinking through that. Um, But so we wanted to have an open house um, just to let people know that we're here. And, um, you know, we had um, an event set up to have people come in and meet us and look around and stuff like that. So um, we had flyers and we were just walking around the community, knocking on doors, handing out flyers. And um, my partner, he like, by the grace of God, just walks into this woman. And, you know, she is the CEO of a huge nonprofit um, that sort of caters to that autistic community that I mentioned. And, you know, we start to build a relationship with her. And she's like, wow, you guys are like across the street. And, you know, she's, you know, thinking the same thing that I just mentioned to you. Like, this is perfect because there's nothing like this in this area and the support is needed. So we build an amazing relationship with her. And, you know, now we're starting to partner with her in events and meeting parents and talking to children and stuff like that. And then, you know, word of mouth spreads like, you know, if if things are good, um, you know, things kind of spread word of mouth. So. Um, that's been like how we've been getting patients so far, but now we're trying to shift to like doing our own marketing, um, you know, focusing on ads and, you know, doing things for the newspaper and stuff like that. But like, we're still like in the beginning of that journey. Do you have concerns about how East Orange may change the way the other oranges have changed? Yes and no. Um, you know, I lived in East Orange for two years. Um, so I saw like, you know, the development happening. Um, you know, I can see investors coming in and things like that. Um, but it's not it's not consistent enough to where I think the makeup of the community is gonna change. Um, that may happen, but no time soon. Maybe it'll probably take a decade for that community to, to turn around because it's it's honestly so bad. Um but yeah, I can see I can see the investors coming in, but I don't think the community is going to change that much. So like looking at the way that you've gone about this with your partners, it takes a certain kind of temperament to bootstrap in this way at this this level. And I think what stops a lot of folks, particularly people who look like us from taking the big leap is feeling like if I don't have all the money in my account to do this today. And if I don't have the money for contingency plans and unexpected expenses, like I can't get started. I'm not going to do this. And that for most people never happens, right? Or it happens at age 55 when you've been in your career for 30 plus years. So what, how do you manage the stress and the anxiety around this idea of literally getting paid over here and then investing into this major enterprise over there? Um, it's sort of an out-of-body experience, honestly. Um, it's it's more so of keeping my head in the future, um, knowing that sooner or later uh, I won't have to self-fund um, and, and just really staying laser-focused on, on that goal. 
Um, because if you try to like live in the present with that, it's really, really tough. Because again, I live in my basement. <laughs> so because, you know, I, I have I have to focus on my goal, right? I'm sacrificing for the bigger goal. And, um, you know, there are times where like, you know, there are issues that come with living in a basement. I'm just like, man, like, you know, I could be living, you know, <laughs> in, in a very a nicer environment, but, you know, eyes on the prize and, and just having that mindset gets me through, you know, I know one day that it's going to pay off and, and knowing how much it's impacting other people in a positive way. Um, you know, I'm able to make the sacrifice. And we all know that when we're talking about um, this space within healthcare, be it urgent care, physical therapy, occupational therapy, lots of people build these types of businesses to get bought out by a conglomerate, right? It is a it is a focus and a target for investment groups now um, within the healthcare industry. Do you feel like this is like a FUBU situation? Like we want to hold this and own it uh, forever? Or is there pos- a possibility for a different play down the line? Yeah, so we ha- I've had these conversations with my partners um, more than once, right? Because it, it ultimately, um, you know, we want to stay in control, right? Right, and and you know, again, we're all from humble beginnings, so the idea of getting a hundred million dollar buyout or fifty million dollar buyout is is an amazing opportunity, right? And that could benefit our families for years to come. Um, but I think we're somewhere in the middle, right? Like we want to be able to, um, you know, have some more infrastructure and some more finances and capital sort of come through the door so that we can do more um, and, and sort of take a step back, right? Because, you know, we all have full-time jobs, we have responsibilities and going through this period is tough. And eventually we're going to want to take a break, right? And in order to do that, we kind of have to have the finances to do that. So I think at some point we would entertain some sort of buyout, but we want to remain in control. Maybe we sell 30% or 40%, but we want to remain in complete control of the company forever. I don't think we'd ever sell completely. And, you know, thinking about that, the investment that you're doing and playing the long game, I want to talk about that um, in relation to kind of how that plays out with personal goals as well, because oftentimes, you know, people, when you've reached VP status and you've gotten to a certain point in your career, what, what does everyone assume? Like you're balling, right? Like you've got the money, you've got the flat car, the nice house, and you may own real estate like you do, but make the sacrifice in the way that you have for the long term. But do you feel pressure, particularly because you've been raised by, you know, these two strong women that like I'm investing in the long game, but that may mean I can't take care of my family in the way that I aspire to, or it may mean that being a husband and father is going to be farther down the line. Are you having these internal conversations with yourself and how do you reconcile that? If so. Absolutely. Every single day, (laughs) every single day. And I mean, for full disclosure, I'm 33 and, you know, having a family and a child is, is an aspiration for me. So, you know, eventually I have to figure something out, but <clears throat> I think it's it's a matter of being transparent and sort of being able to deal with people being disappointed in me, honestly, right? Because everyone has their like expectations of me because they think, you know, I have all this available capital when in reality, you know, my money is tied up at the moment. And so people don't understand that. They don't understand that. And I think it's just being able to deal with you know, people being disappointed or feeling like um, or being upset that I'm not being 
or providing for them in the way that they think that I should, because I know down the line there will be a time, you know, when I can do that. Um, so I think that's that's one part of it. The other part of it is just you know, knowing that my heart is in the right place, right? It'd be one thing if I actually had or was living the life that they think that I'm living and not doing, you know, what I should be or um, to support them, um, but I'm not, right? So I know that my heart is in the right place, but, you know, it, it, it weighs definitely um, every day, but got to keep one foot in front of the other and keep walking. So that's what I've been doing. And I think that that's pressure, and like a dialogue that black and brown folks experience that you don't hear from from our white counterparts. It's just an added layer of complexity to the choices that you make for your life, thinking about and having concern for how do you give back and take care of other people. Like I've never heard one of my white friends bring that up. It's never it's, it's more so them being like, I'm trying to figure out when I get like the next part of my trust or, you know, if my dad will give me money for this because he wants to save on you know taxes. So he's trying to move some money over here to me. Like, it's just a very different dynamic and quite frankly can be an added layer of stress. Yeah. And and honestly, like they just don't have those problems, right? Mm -hmm. Like they come from wealth. Um, The socioeconomics between our groups are just different, right? So they don't have, they don't have those kinds of challenges. And, you know, that's why we are making the sacrifices that we're making because we want to change that, right? Like, I, I, I don't want that to be a problem for my kids and my grandkids. Um, and so I think everyone has to sacrifice to get further in the long run. And, you know, some people are going to understand that and some people won't. But, you know, if I feel in my heart that I'm doing the right thing to benefit everyone, you know, that's that's just the path that I chose, you know? Mm-hmm. And as you've been on this path and evolution as a man um, and as a professional and now an entrepreneur, have you thought back to the absence of your father and explored that any further? Yes. Um, So I have to be careful with my words here, but uh, I think the absence of my dad has sort of shown up in my love life, Mm. right? Because I... You know, I, I didn't I didn't know what it was like to see, you know, a man like love a woman, how he treats a woman and stuff like that. So, you know, I kind of have this internal battle about the kind of man that I want to be and how I should be doing things. And, you know, just looking at my past, how I've hurt certain women, you know, based on decisions I've made because I didn't have like the right guidance or the right idea about what a man should be. So um, certainly missing, missing the absence of my dad in that aspect. Um but, you know, thankfully, I have a great, 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 great circle of friends. I mean, amazing guys. And honestly, I look to them, right? These these are people that know me really well. And we're sort of like on the same path. We're kind of like the same people. So, you know, I look to them. Um, you know, a lot of them are married. They have families and kids and, you know, and they're doing a great job. So that absence, while that absence is there, I have I have an outlet to to sort of fill that void a little bit. Awesome. Uh, now shifting gears a little bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think that in my present day, I have to be extraordinary every day. Um, you know, I, I recently ascended to this new role where there is a ton of responsibility and that responsibility is continuing to grow um, and the expectations of me are continuing to grow. 
And, you know, while I want to do well for myself, I also want to, you know, be an example and be able to, um, you know, be a light for other people coming behind me. So there is an intense amount of stress and pressure that comes with that. And then, you know, on the other side of that coin, I'm also an entrepreneur. So, you know, after going through a day of, you know, working in finance for nine, 10 hours, I have another four hours left to focus on and and focus and problem solve and figure out how to build this infrastructure um, for an institution to support the community. And, um, you know, that that goes until 10, 11 p.m. And then to add to that, you know, I'm a landlord. So (laughs) going through all that and then I get the phone call that toilet isn't working. You know, I kind of have to to do that, too. And then I have to juggle all those things and um, still live life. Right. Support my family and my friends and stuff like that. So I think, you know, just having that sort of weight and responsibility to carry um, sort of forces me to be extraordinary every day. And uh, without consideration for who might actually hear this from your current company in a perfect world, when, if and when do you get to jump into entrepreneurship full time? That is something I've been wrestling with um, because I want to finish my career. I want to go sea level and that's the next step. And that might be another five, 10 year journey. Um, But I think when it's all said and done, I won't hit the stop or I have a hard stop at 45. So wherever I am in my professional career, I think at that point, it will be time to fully focus on entrepreneurship. Listen, well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and you're one of the few people who've been on the show and had the ability to really condense their story into a solid hour. Most folks cannot do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But thanks so much for joining us, but tell people where they can find out more about you as well as the health center online. Uh, SereneHealthCenter.com, Serene Health Center on Instagram. Uh, My handle on Instagram is t.mcd and three underscores on Instagram. Also on Facebook as Tariq McDermott. Um, Yeah, pretty much it. Well, I am thoroughly excited to see what you do, particularly in a community that needs it um, and, and requires and should have access to quality care. Uh, I I couldn't be more proud of what you're building and I'm excited to see how it evolves. And something tells me that Serene Health Center, this location is not the last. I hope not. I hope (laughs) that's definitely the goal. And thanks for having me. It was really good talk to you. Thanks for being here. To our listeners, listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, comment, tell a few friends about it. Also, uh, if you are a New Jersey resident, please check out Serene Health Center and the work that they're doing there. Um, If there are ways that you can support or if you're looking to uh, receive care, please do that. You know, we support our own around here. And if nothing else, Please remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 